Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's episode, are doom and gloom narratives about water accurate? And if not, how do we change them? My guest is John Fleck, director of the University of New Mexico's Water Resources Program and author of the book, Water is for Fighting Over, and other myths about water in the West. Before he joined the University of New Mexico, he covered science and the environment for 25 years for the Albuquerque Journal newspaper. Coming up, I talk with John about why our narratives about water are so gloomy, why water isn't inevitably for fighting over or destined to be scarce, and what would it mean for the environment to have a seat at the table in the Colorado River Basin. John um, was a journalist for the Albuquerque Journal for over 25 years and has written broadly about water for much longer than that. He is the author of a, of a blog called Inkstain, which um, has a bajillion followers. Um, and in fact, the first place that I met John was when he covered uh, my Cadillac Desert paper, which was published in 2010. And John covered that paper in, in his, his blog. And now he's a professor of practice in the Department of Economics at the University of New Mexico, where he directs uh, the Water Resources Program. And today we're going to talk about narratives in journalism about water, uh, crisis narratives and abundance narratives. John, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me and talking about this really, this topic that's very much near and dear to my heart. So tell me about it. Tell me, why do journalists always write about doom and crisis and failure when it comes to water? So there's this really interesting process within all the newsrooms I've worked in where reporters at the beginning of working on a story will um, put together what we would call what we call in the business a budget note, a couple of sentences for an editor explaining what the story is about. And then the editor goes in, you know, your sub-editor goes into the meeting of all the department editors and tries to sell that to the main editors of the newspaper. And so you want something that has some drama and that's kind of sexy. It has a chance to get on the front page because that's sort of the norms of the community. Like you want to be on the front page. You want to lead the newscast. And drama and crisis and conflict sell. They work. Audiences love them. There is a reason why if it bleeds, it leads is a cliche in television news, right? Audiences are drawn to that. And so if you want to succeed in the business, you get good at that. You get good at finding the darkness in any situation, finding the bad news, finding the villain, finding the impending doom and crisis. That's that's the lingua franca of the business. And it's, you know, it's not that the, the people in the newsroom are bad people and, and love the worst things. It's that our readers do, right? That's what readers want. Mm-hmm. So blame the audience, not the journalist. Yeah. And, you know, and we see that, you know, and we really can see that now that we have access to all this analytics data and the clicks we get on our websites, right? That's what people click on. That's what people want is conflict and crisis and problems. And so we have a culture of, culture of journalism that's sort of grown up around and built around young journalists getting rewarded for pursuing those kinds of stories. That's what the um, that's what audience behavior rewards. And so it's not that there's not positive news out there. 
if you look for it in your newspapers and on your NPR feed and, and so on, your web feeds, you'll find it. It's there, but it just doesn't draw as, as, as big an audience. And so, so it's a business that caters to that. That's interesting. So, so tell me about, I mean, it seems like in the times that we've talked in the past, you have, this is a dilemma for you. Um, you, you write about other things. Tell me how you've worked to change that and what, you know, what your success stories are there. So, so there was a, there's this great saying from one of the editors that I worked with over many years in the newspaper, in the newspaper newsroom, which was, we don't write about planes that don't crash. And ultimately I came as a journalist to realize that if I want people to understand the world, say, for example, the world of planes, then the fact that most of the planes don't crash is kind of an important thing for readers to understand about planes, right? That if all we tell people are the bad things, um, and it's not that there aren't bad things worth talking about, but if that's all we tell them, people will come to understand the world as a fundamentally dark and dangerous place. So give me an example of that in water. Yes. So Albuquerque has a long and troubled history with its water. Very, very challenged, water-challenged place. The Rio Grande, our our central river, um, um, has been declining dramatically in the 21st century. Our aquifers for a long time were in decline. So water was really a trouble, bad news crisis story here in Albuquerque. And when I was um, working on the beat in um, kind of around 2008 to 2010 on the water beat at the Albuquerque Journal, um, Albuquerque had embarked on a really aggressive conservation program, one of the most successful conservation programs in terms of water use reductions of any municipality in the West, arguably the most successful of the major cities in the West. Um, We were doing really, really well. We also did some operational shifts to reduce our dependence on groundwater and shift to using imported Colorado River surface water. And as a result, our groundwater, our aquifer was actually rising, right? And the the doom story about aquifers is aquifers are in decline Mm -hmm. um, and communities are threatened as a result. And here the opposite was happening. Conservation success, aquifer rebounding. And so as a journalist, Looking for bad news, I looked at that and I would think that's not really a story because it's not bad yet. So I, but I use the tools of investigative journalism. I would get the data routinely, keep an eye on the data. And what I was doing as a journalist was looking for the bad news story. So I was waiting for failure to happen. Um, that's what we do as journalists. Like we look for <laughs> failure and then we pounce because that's what gets you on the front page. And for a long time, I, you know, I got the monthly pumping reports and there's a groundwater monitoring well just like right around the corner from my house. So I would just you know, every few months check on it in the USGS databases. And the aquifer kept rising and our conservation kept improving. And eventually it dawned on me, this t- I'm embarrassed at how long it took. It dawned on me like, well, maybe actually the success is a story. We're actually succeeding. But in the culture of the newsroom, the story about a not problem is like, this was a plane not crashing. Mm-hmm. So eventually I because I thought it was an interesting story and wanted to write it. I exploited this trick that, that I got very good at at the newspaper, which is exploiting the sort of news vacuum around the Christmas season, the time between sort of the Christmas holiday and the New Year's holiday when there's nothing going on. I would always squirrel away crazy story ideas that normally would not pass the morning meeting test and, and pitch them during that time. And editors were desperate for copy and they would say, sure, whatever, Fleck, write the story. So that's when I did it. And, and the, story, the story actually ran on Christmas Day. I, I actually I didn't think of it at the time. I went back and 
found the old story for a talk I was giving. It's like, wait, I, I really worked that one because Christmas Day, there's not a lot of news going on, right? And in this case, editors want one happy, nice story on the front page. So like, like you know, I had to exploit the, you know, if I had come in with a story about the aquifer dropping and conservation is failing, they would have been all over it right away. That would have been easy to sell on the front page. But, but those success stories are harder. And, and that experience was kind of a turning point for me because I realized that the narrative that I had been pursuing around water, which was doom, crisis, chaos, was not coming to pass because, you know, that was during a time period when I was starting to work on the book that became Waters for Fighting Over, um, was published in 2015. I was starting to look around at a lot of cities and I was finding actually a bunch of people are having similar successes. What's up with that? And realized that there was an importance to offering up this alternative narrative and trying to do what I could to reframe the discussion. Because it's not that I don't think we have enormous problems with water, but if we recognize that there's a bunch of things that we're doing well and improving at, that's where we turn to learn the lessons that we'll need to apply to do more faster in, in greater detail as sort of climate change depletes the available supply in you know, places like where I am in Albuquerque. Yeah, I like that. Um, one thing that I always get pushback on when advancing the positive narrative of abundance, I mean, we live on the blue planet, right, is, um, well, that optimism could lead people to not worry as much as they need to. Yeah. Do you, do you, what, what do you think about that? And how do you, how do you stave that off? I get that pushback all the time. Yeah. And it raises an interesting problem. But I think we need, to, if we're going to actually be able to deal with these problems, we need to be able to walk and chew gum, right? Same time. Right. We need to be able to recognize both that the problems are really extreme, are really serious, but also that we have some enormously successful tools at our disposal to deploy. And if you don't, if you don't get both of those, if you just see the crisis and presume, as many people do, that the crisis is happening in the absence of positive action by the people who are trying to think really hard on this and act, then we, then we don't get to the right answer. So you have to have both of them or, or we're going to make no progress. I agree completely. Um, tell me about what you do with your blog. You have a certain um, mission with your blog, I think. Yeah. So the, the, so the blog is something that, that started in parallel and actually has always been, it's been a hobby project for got almost 20 years. And partly just, I wrote about whatever I want. It wasn't always a water blog. And it's still sometimes not a water blog. I write about my bike rides in my garden and um, all mm -hmm. kinds of, um, my bird watching and all kinds of things. So when, partly it's just a personal vanity project. There's no money involved in it, right? I don't get paid for it. It's just, but I'm a writer, as a writer, because I learned how to write as, as a writing in real time in newspapers, which is to say writing directly and immediately to audience. I don't know how to write without an immediate audience. It's very difficult for me to write and have it just sit on a computer hard drive or a piece of paper. So, so writing for audience matters to me. So partly it's just a, my writing process and exercise. But, but as, I, as I came to write a lot about water, it became really useful to have an outlet where I could explore and experiment with all these ideas that were interesting to me that might not have fitted in the traditional publication um, formats and frameworks. And once the, once the blog developed a significant audience in the water community, and so these are some interested general public members, uh, members of the general public, um, some academics, and a lot of practitioners, people who work in water agencies, especially in Colorado River Basin, 
you know, water policy and management and governance, I came to realize that there was an important niche to be filled for a basic ongoing information source that provided a kind of shared understanding or exploited the shared understandings um, and became a kind of broad communication platform where we can all be discussing Colorado River systems and issues and governance. And I really, um, especially as I left newspapers and was working on the book Waters for Fighting Over, I needed a place to continue to write in public about that stuff and engage in the conversation with the audience um, so that um, so that I have the feedback loops to explore my own ideas, but also to get some ideas out in front of people who I think need to be aware of things that I think are important. It's kind of like having a, a, a following that becomes your editor in some yeah. ways. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a really interesting feedback loop. Uh-huh. That's um, interesting. In, in that way, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. All right, so we talked about myths yeah. um, and debunking them. Tell me what you think the, I mean, you're, you're, you write, wrote a book about one, but tell me what you think the top two or three water myths are. That... So let me go back and talk about why I ended up writing a book about myths, because I didn't set out to do that. Um, you know, the title of the book is Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. And there is an important approach to writing informational content for audience that involves trying to conceptualize what your audience knows already, what you think they might know. And then what you think they need to know. And sometimes the thing that you think they know is wrong and you need to convince them that something different is correct. And sometimes you just need to start with the thing they might already know and lead them to the new knowledge. Um, But it's important to kind of start with where you think your reader is. And as I was writing the chapters for the book that became Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths, um, um, I was doing that a lot. I was starting with things that I expected my readers would know. And then in some cases, explaining why it's not actually that way, it's, it's different. And here's the difference and trying to lead them from the thing they thought they knew to an understanding that it was wrong and what's correct. Um, and I was just doing this. That's the, the approach. That's my approach to writing always is to think about my audience in that way. Um, and my editor, Emily Turner, who was just brilliant, um, uh, really one of the best editors I've ever worked with, emailed or actually it was a phone conversation about four chapters in, I would write a chapter and send it to her. And we'd have these sort of, she'd respond in bulk and we'd talk four or five chapters at a time. And she said, you know what you're doing, John, is in every one of these chapters so far, you're debunking a myth. Do you realize you were doing that? And I didn't even realize I was doing that. She's the one who noticed what I was doing. Best editors notice what you're doing. You may not see it yourself. She said, that's really what this book is about, isn't it? I said, yeah, I guess so. And so that became a more explicit structure for the book. And the most obvious myth, the one that we started with in the title is, you know, the, the old cliche that whiskey is for drinking and waters for fighting over, which is falsely attributed to Mark Twain. Twain seems never to have said it. Oh, wow. And there was a lot of fun chasing that down. That was, that was the little fun journalistic exercise and chasing the, the fact that he never set it down. What about the coldest winter that I ever felt was in San Francisco? <laughs> I, think, I don't know. I don't know, man. Yeah. There's, no, a, lot of, there's a lot attributed to Twain that he didn't say, but I think that may be one. Um, uh, true. So, yeah. So, whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting over. And, you know, it's, it's wrong that Twain said it, but it also is really wrong if you look at the scholarship on collaboration and conflict around water, what what you find far more frequently is people successfully solve their shared water boundary problems. Um, And conflict is always involved in it, um, but collaborative solutions are far more likely than conflict-based solutions. And, and, you know, 
actual fighting, physical violence almost never happens. And again, this goes back to the sort of narratives that draw people's attention. We know about the examples where it happened. We don't notice the ones that didn't um, happen. We, you know, there's a bunch of planes not crashing in this field, and we just are paying attention to a handful. So like the Syrians, we we hear a lot about, but then yeah, yeah, other transboundary situations. Yeah, yeah, hear. most transboundary situations aren't that right. Um, and so, and it's not that again, there aren't problems. Um, in those areas where it is a conflict, where there are conflicts, but um, but it's more likely that it's not. And so this was a, a, a myth to be debunked, and so so it did. I have long thought that um, that the old cliche that water flows uphill toward money um, is another one, and because in fact there are ways that it is true. It certainly was very expensive to build the Central Arizona project to pump water uphill to Phoenix and Tucson, and so in a sense. In that case, water did flow uphill toward money. But but there's a sense in which it's commonly used, which is to imply that rich communities will inevitably get the water. And in the Western United States, where I work, that simply is not the case. These old agricultural communities are have far less resources and yet still control the vast majority of the water, right? And And the rich communities, generally speaking, aren't trying to use their money and political muscle to take all the water away. Um, and so this notion that water flowing uphill toward money implies that rich communities will take it from poor communities um, is, is another one of the myths. And then do you think there's just, just let me push on that a little bit. Do you think that there's a difference between, so when you say, when you make this contrast between farms and cities, I mean, that was a core of Reisner's Cadillac desert book, right? Like the conflict between those two and, do you think there's a difference between water for um, beneficial uses other than drinking water? Like, do you think that that expression is more about drinking water than it is about um, water at large? I guess I see it as a piece of a broader narrative that I think is false, where poor rural communities often feel constantly threatened that the rich communities are going to take their water away. And so that's what I mean when I'm challenging it as a myth. And I don't, I don't see that poor communities tending to think rich communities will simply take the water away um, when in fact, you know, we see time and time again, there are some really interesting collaborative relationships where a little bit of water flows to the city and, the, and some money flows to the farm community and the farm community stays intact. The cliche implies water flowing from a poor place to a rich place. That's oh, right. the way it's uh -huh. often used. Um, it certainly is. It certainly is the case, and I would never argue that it's not that rich communities have a far easier time solving the adaptation and resilience problem than poor communities. Definitely. Well, the are yeah, that's that's a good distinction. And this is, I think, one of the most important ones, which is that growing populations mean inexorable growth in use of water. And in fact, we're seeing the opposite happen. And this is just one that I bang away on all the time. Every talk mm -hmm. I give, I throw three, four, five graphs showing a population going up and water use going down in a myriad of, you know, rich nation, first world nation situations. You know, it's commonly the case across the world, mostly in the Western United States, where I work in is where most of my data is, but you can see it everywhere. Um, and that's incredibly important because because this is one of the ways of fighting back against the crisis narrative. It's like, look, actually, we're already doing a lot to use less water. What are those things we're doing? And that's a really important one. 
All right. Well, let's let's move from myths to when pigs will fly scenarios. This is, uh, <laughs> and this scenario is one we've talked about before, but it, you know, it's it's almost taboo to bring it up, and I want to discuss the taboo and why the taboo uh, prevents us from innovating. Um, and the taboo is Colorado River system is broken. There's less water in the river than than the allocations. That's not going to change anytime in the near future. Why don't we just start over? And everybody, you know, I I, I can hear a hundred thousand people cringing when I say that. And and the reason why I'm asking the question is not because I think we should, but but I think we should talk about it because I think if we talked about it, we would be more likely to innovate on what we have. What do you tell me about this and tell me how that fits into to your approach to to writing about water? Yeah, so this is a really interesting example because it highlights a tension among a group of people that I'm in the midst of writing a book chapter with. Some of us are on the, um, we're never going to do that, meaning tear apart the allocation and distribution system and start from scratch and therefore don't try and have the discussion and, and others within the author group who who are more interested in tearing it apart and having um, in, in having the discussion. And so in our case, it's been really useful to have the discussion, right, to, for, for us all to put the questions on the, on the table. One of the reasons don't like the discussion is, and so one of the reasons that I'm someone who doesn't pursue that discussion, is that in our problem-solving arenas, we have relatively little capacity for broad institutional problem solving. Our capacity is not unlimited. And insofar as we're spending time having what I think is a, is likely to be an unproductive conversation in that arena, we're taking time away from what I think may be the productive conversations that we can have that could actually lead to some actually tractable problem solving. So that's my argument for not sort of pursuing it um, but I think there's a really good argument that the critics of my view, including my co-authors on this chapter, make that I'm, I'm finding intriguingly persuasive is that there are some fundamental equity issues in terms of um, uh, parties and values and interests that are kind of left out of our current water allocation regime that are going to stay left out if we aren't more... Um, if we aren't more broadly innovative in thinking about what those solutions might be. And I, in particular, we're talking about the indigenous communities of the Western United States and the tribes and water for the environment, both of which are interests that don't have powerful institutions behind them with resources to engage in this more incremental discussion that we've had. And both of which have been sort of left out of the whole thing for, for a long time as a result. So I don't. I think I've successfully dodged your question, but you may want to push harder than that. <laughs> oh, that's that's the standard approach. Um, but I, I'll just um, I'll follow your your dodge and go to the e flows piece, which I think is interesting because um, you said you know the 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 two um, the two groups that are that are missing out in in the current allocation system are are um, indigenous groups, tribes, and I would probably add in there rural communities to some extent, and then the environment. And it's interesting to me, um, we have a, quite a few segments on, on equity, so we'll follow up on that. But this eFlows suggestion is interesting. In Texas, there's a Senate bill, Senate Bill 3, 
which provides some context for new water rights um, and how they're allocated in terms of um, the environment and the impact on the environment. So it's almost like the environment has a seat at the table under SB3 in Texas. How would that play out in, in a Colorado River kind of situation? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think one of the things we need is new institutional um, rule sets. Um, it's interesting to think about how that might work in a Colorado River context, simply because um, one of the challenges on this in this subject, and, and in fact with travel water too, is that the Colorado River Basin um, governance structure delegates to individual states the responsibility for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So an individual state has its water, and it gets to decide um, within its within state institutions who gets what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so individual states can and, and have in many cases had that discussion. So you see, for example, you know, some really interesting innovative examples in Arizona where you have cultures and communities that care um, in ways that have created some, some neat novel institutional arrangements to allow industry influence, but especially in the state of Colorado, which has both um, you know, a strong sort of environmental political culture mm-hmm. um, combined with the advantage of being upstream and having some obligations under the Colorado River Compact to move a bunch of water downstream anyway. So you got more water to work with in a place like Colorado. Yeah. Um, and so you have sort of some enablement for and the creation of some institutional structures around environmental flows that have enabled more of this. I mean, New Mexico is a really interesting um, example for this because we're just trying to come up with tools for how to incorporate an example of what the Texas, the sort of thing you're talking about in the Texas case. And we just haven't quite done that. Um, and it, it, it's in part because traditional water institutions view that as a threat. Traditional water using constituencies view that as a threat um, and, and have tended to dominate the, um, the political institutions. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard nut to crack. Yeah. No, that's, those are good thoughts. And I think, you know, my mind was drifting towards uh, the Delta minute 319 kind of stuff. But yeah. I think the, the observation of how you would do it system-wide and how you might exploit um, current policy and current allocation um, requirements to yeah. deliver flows is a good yeah. one. Um, yeah. I mean, there was this great idea that um, some of the environmentalists um, uh, proposed back in the early 2000s um, and um, which the idea was 1% for the Delta. Like if everybody across the basin just kicked in 1%, we could all easily do this. And I'd love this. I was like intuitively, this is super attractive. I'm happy to give up 1% of my water at my house for this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the institutional mechanisms to sort of do, to have every individual party across the basin give up 1% and then move the accounting through the system. It just was, the transaction costs were staggering the political and institutional and water accounting transaction costs were just just staggering. And it sort of illustrates the decentral, the problem associated with the decentralized nature of the water management. That's interesting that, yeah. Huh. I wrote a very naive newspaper called um, early on about what a great idea that was. And look back on it, it's like, really, did I think that? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, we're gonna 
end with a couple question or two on groundwater um, yeah. and we'll see where we go. So, yeah. um, and crisis. So, yeah. um, I've written a lot about this, um, and, and this is, this is going to delve into science a little bit. And I think, you know, when I ask you about why do journalists do this, scientists do this too. Um, you know, this crisis focus, um, yeah. you know, there are many papers out there that say, you know, this is, you know, water's going to be gone by this date. Um, and, and that, that includes um, the focus in groundwater, I think, especially satellite-based measurement of groundwater on, well, here are the hotspots of crisis, big red maps of where yeah. aquifers are overdrawn. And I'm not arguing that those aquifers aren't overdrawn and that it isn't a problem that we need to address, but um, how, do we, um, how do we turn that around? How do we turn, how would you suggest scientists, we turn scientists around to start thinking about how to propose the solutions and do science on that. Yeah, so um, this is an area where um, it's not clear to me at this point that we need more science. And the reason I say that is because every one of those big red hot spots on a gray satellite map, for example, which are you know the satellites that are measuring the depletion of aquifers, um, the folks who have wells in the middle of that red thing, they already know that, right? They have a well and they know that their electricity bill is going up because they're pumping farther or they're measuring the depth of the groundwater. So the satellite is not saying anything, but the people actually in the position to make the water management decisions um, don't already know. Um, and this is one of the, you know, the, the, one of the fascinating things to me about the Grace data is it's been so useful in providing the global picture to people like like me who want to know what's going on in, in India or in across the Ogallala aquifer in Southern San Joaquin Valley, um, for example, the places where we've overdrafts. But folks in those places already knew, right? So so and and the actions required um, don't depend on having additional satellite data telling them something that they already knew. They depend on other things, right? And they depend on the social and community structures. And so the space here is for, and the, the need for action is not on the part of the physical scientists, right? There's not some more physical science that's gonna, I mean, there, there's some bits of physical science that are gonna be useful going forward in areas in the terms of this groundwater management. But what we need there is the social science, the, the, the social scientists who can look at the community structures and the decision-making frameworks that are leading to that overdraft and help, uh, help us better understand what the collaborative community structures are that could help us overcome this tragedy of the commons that we're seeing in those places, right? And, and this is another great example of, of the planes not crashing. There are a bunch of places that have done quite well in overcoming this problem. Albuquerque, my own city, is an example of this, right? But, but, and and you know, when I wrote Waters for Fighting Over, I spent a bunch of time in the work of Eleanor Ostrom, and she and her colleagues and students spent a lot of time studying the groundwater basins of Southern California, where where community governance, self governance structures, public entrepreneurs who led the development of collaborative institutions and communities came together to understand this is a shared resource and we need to reduce our use of it and change the way we govern it and succeeded. And so 
So, so what we need is not the physical science. What we need is the social science to help understand how those successful um, shared resource management structures in these common pool resources can be most used um, and exploited. And I think we're really ripe for that. And you're seeing this grand experiment in California Central Valley with the, um, the what is it called? The SAFE or SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. I can't remember what the S is for. SIGMA. Right. So you're seeing you're seeing, you know, an attempt at building these new new institutional governance widgets that maybe can help us overcome these problems. I couldn't agree more. I think this is, you know, when I said science, I meant science at large. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing this kind of um, science and especially multidisciplinary science that includes physical scientists, but led by um, by social science and, and um, to, to tackle these problems. One Last question on that. We talked about this before, and it's the idea of, well, if we're going to, well, I'll just put out the the topic. It's um, aquifers are empty, but that makes them a great place to store water if they're empty. So they could be the reservoirs of the future. Um, Do we know enough to know if that's a valuable methodology? And is there a value in physical science in that spot? I think there's definitely really important physical science to be done there. And, and you know, you see this um, actually, in, for example, in Southern California, it's been going on for a long time. People have been just sort of using them that way for more than a century, you know, actually. Um, you know, mountain, mountain front runoff aquifer storage has been going on since the 1890s in Southern California. So, um, so people have been sort of using this idea for a long time. And I really, I think you really see a bunch of progress being made in this area. You see a lot of discussion of that, for example, in Sigma and related activities in California's um, Central Valley. You see a lot of really good- Flood managed aquifer recharge. Yeah. yeah, You see Uh a lot of good work in, um, in Southern California on this as well. And, And there are, I think, really important technical questions about, among other things, water quality, as we recharge, as we use them as reservoirs, what are the water quality implications? We need something we have spent some time, folks here in New Mexico spent some time thinking about because we're kind of late to the aquifer recharge to the aquifers as reservoirs game. Um, and also recovery, right? And there's some risk. You can just put it all on the ground um, and will we be able to get it out again? And, and what are the issues? And then there's a bunch of really interesting, you know, kicking this over to the social scientists, sort of institutional cultural and regulatory issues about um, how we decide whose water that is and when someone puts it in, who gets to take it out and when, when and how do we get to take it out. But we've seen this in Albuquerque. I mean, the, the sort of the, the framing, the metaphor that our water utility has been using is in fact, just what you're talking about. This, this is a reservoir. This is our drought reserve. We're storing water down there as a hedge against climate change and future future drought. And that rising aquifer that we've been so successful of is not intrinsically valuable. It's valuable as a water storage asset. Exactly. Well, great. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. I always like our conversations. This one went, you know, touched on so many more topics that we, we, that I even anticipated, which is, which is fun and like your blog. And so anyway, thank you for joining and, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. This is great. Cool. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, 
visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sabo.